Well, the distance from the synagogue to this person's home couldn't have been more than two-thirds of a mile because that was the allotment, the distance you could go on a Sabbath day journey. I imagine the guests who were there, some of them more distinguished than others, took a look at him and maybe muttered a word or two to themselves or kind of looked at them and said, look who's here, kind of thing, as they saw him come in. Being at the home of prominent Pharisee for dinner, I imagine where each one sat that particular day because of whose house they were at mattered maybe a little bit more. I imagine after looking at him, they couldn't help look at him, this sick man who was there, and wondered, who invited this guy to be here? This doesn't fit that this guy is to be among us. It was the Sabbath day. It was church day, like it is for us today on Sundays since the resurrection of Christ. It was a day for rest. It was a time to enjoy a great meal with family and friends. Many of us have grown up in the church and know what that's like to have that Sunday afternoon meal, similar to this one. We don't know if it was before they sat down at the dinner table or once the dinner table and the food had been served and they start in on their eating and conversation ensues that the mood changed completely with these 10 words, 10 words in the form of a question that caught everyone probably by surprise. These 10 words, in my mind, if somebody's taking a drink and we're about ready to swallow when he said this, I'm sure almost choked (laughs) on what they were drinking. Perhaps another one was chewing a piece of bread, and when they heard these 10 words, this question, they just paused right then before continuing to chew on and swallow. Maybe another person had grabbed a a piece of bread or or something off the plate and were about to take it. And when he said this, they kind of just looked at one another and maybe just held that for an extra moment because of what he had said. Ten words in the form of a question. A question that no one at the table had an answer for. No one could answer him. No one knew what to say. They They were struck. They didn't know what to do. Oh yeah, that sick man that I mentioned, that man that everyone was wondering, why is that guy here? Well, this person decides to dismiss him after he heals him, and he's sent on his way. Ten words, question, silence. How about a 26-word question asks of the crowd, those gathered at the table? And just like the first question, no one has an answer. Everyone remains silent. As is often the case around my dinner table, your dinner table, is you'll share maybe a story from the day or from the week or something that you saw and you'll begin to tell a story. And then, then maybe someone chimes in with another story and then another story goes on and it's just kind of what you do in those conversations at the table as you're eating dinner. As the time of this day came to a conclusion and everyone's going back home, We don't have an account for the rest of this letter, this gospel letter, that he's ever invited back again for dinner on the Sabbath. I mean, who would invite this guy back to a meal at their house? I mean, he ignored the religious etiquette, the proper protocol that you're supposed to have and do, kind of like at church, like you're supposed to say these things and not those things. Uh, He sent one of the guests away. Imagine being at the table that you're a guest of and you dismiss one of the guests and tell him to go on his way. Or, 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 or you have, you're one of the guests there 
and you're rebuked. Or you're the host and he says something to you and you're found this rather offensive towards you. And then to top it all off, his final story, right before you're probably ready to take a great bite of dessert, he tells them, oh, and by the way, all of you here at this table, you're not going to heaven. You're actually going to hell. You imagine what the environment, the experience would have been if that's kind of what's happening. Everybody's insulted and then you're going to hell. That's what we have here. I am not making this up. This is actually what we have in Luke's account as you go through the series, Knowing the Truth About Jesus. And it comes from Gospel of Luke, as Luke wrote this, Dr. Luke. This is what happened on one Sabbath day when, as I call it, Jesus went to dinner. When he went to dinner, I don't know about you, but have you ever had a group or been in a group or been with others? And the longer that dinner went on, the more uncomfortable you felt just because of the conversation and that environment. It's kind of like one of those circumstances where you kind of wish that you could not be there. Or, or, or maybe it's a situation where you've been out to dinner and been embarrassed by a member of your dinner party. Maybe by what they said or how their mannerisms are or whatever it might be. And you're just like, man, this, I don't want, when can I get out of here? There's one blessing about cell phones today. You can always pretend like you're taking a call. Excuse me, I need to get this and, and excuse yourself, right, from that embarrassing dinner situation at that table. Well, this is very similar to what happened, although there's no cell phones to, to be able to use as an excuse to get up. This is what happens in our scripture passage we're going to look at this morning. As we do, I just broke this down as I like to do. Like, what are we going to try and accomplish here? Two main objectives. One is to see and understand what's going on with Jesus at the dinner table, because he's that one I was speaking of that does all this stuff and is never invited back again. I want to see what's going on at the dinner table. And then we want to try and see if we can take some lessons from this. Three important lessons specifically, kind of wisdom to take from if you were at that table and you were to drive home and walk away and go, what am I taking from that conversation that I heard today? It would be these lessons, and we'll look at those in a moment. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, we're going to be in verses 1 through 24 of Luke chapter 14. And I entitled this, When Jesus Went to Dinner, because that's basically what we have here. And the Sabbath, when it came about, there is an evening meal on Friday night. There is lunch, usually a light lunch, uh, around noontime, and then there is the main dinner and I'm assuming that this is probably that main dinner that we're at here in the context of the passage we're looking at. So the question, the big question here is, what happened at dinner? Well, I've kind of given you a preview of what happened at dinner, but we're going to read Luke's account to get it specifically and seeing that what was happening there. And as we do this, I've kind of broken this into four parts because that's what Luke seems to have done. Four parts. So imagine it's this dinner scene. You're at the table, and you're going to stop, and you're going to go, what was happening? We're going to look at scene by scene by scene, as you're sitting there at the table, imagine joining in. You're a guest at the table, and all this is happening, and here's Jesus at the dinner table. Which brings us back to our question. What happened at the dinner? Well, part one is this. While at dinner, Jesus recalibrates the guest value system, moving it that needs eclipse tradition. Recalibrates. It's an adjustment. It's a rethinking of what their value system that they knew and they established and everyone thought was acceptable and was right, he's about to recalibrate that. He's about to twist that upside down 
and show that needs eclipse tradition. See if you pick this up in verses one through six of Luke chapter 14. It happened that when he, that's Jesus, went into the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? First question. But they kept silent. And he took hold of him, this is this man with dropsy, and he healed him and he sent him on his way. And he said to them, looking back at the guests, he said, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And like with the first question, and they could make no reply to this. They remain silent. While at dinner, Jesus is recalibrating the guest value system, putting out that needs eclipse tradition. You see, on the Sabbath, Jesus arrives at the house of prominent Pharisee. We don't have his name, but he's prominent. He's a leader. It says that in the text. That means he's prominent, he's distinguished, he's well-respected, and certainly wealthy. He's noted in who he is. Luke says that as Jesus arrives, that they were watching him closely. Did you see that? In the Greek, it's a present tense verb, which means this. It means that it didn't happen just once. Like when he walked in the door and everyone went, oh, hey, look at him. And then they went on. The idea is that this continues to go on. The entire meal, like they're staring at him, continually looking at him, nonstop. And the idea is this, with, that in, with this word that's used here in the original language, it's the idea of making mental notes to use later. They're not just watching him the entire time. They're watching him and noting everything he does, everything he says. And they're noting it in their mind to use later, most likely, against him. A man is there who's suffering from dropsy. Did you catch that? It's probably a word you don't hear every day. And that's thankfully because of where we are in medical advancements. This isn't as common. But back then, it was a common ailment. And when you suffered from dropsy, it was a medical condition of the swelling of your arms the swelling of your legs, and, and even in your stomach and tummy area. It was, it was not a good scene. It was not a good thing that you'd want to look at. Embarrassing, the stigmas that went with that, the stereotypes that accompanied that, it's all over this man who's there. Why he's there at this guest, he's probably a Pharisee, so he has the right to be there, but I'm guessing everybody's going, who invited, well, I can't believe that he's here. Why is he here? Why do I make a point in this? Well, we're still under the value system, Judaism. See, in Judaism, they taught, they believed, they held to this belief that if you're uh, healthy and wealthy, all is going well for you, then clearly you are a righteous person and God's favor and blessings are upon you. In contrast, if you are unhealthy, Sick with a condition like dropsy, well, clearly we know what's going on. You have sin in your life, and you need to realize that. And therefore, God's blessing is not upon you, but God's judgment is upon you. So imagine you're at that dinner table, and the tension that you, that person created, just being there with those assumptions, those Jewish traditions of going, that guy, what's he doing here? Clearly God's hand is not on him. He's among us. 
His, God's judgment is right there. Look at, look at him. He looks horrible. And this man is creating this tension, but the real tension comes, and I shared it, shared it with you earlier, this question. When Jesus looks and says, hey, I got a question, guys. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Interesting question. The tension, the mood is just changing now because of this question. Is this the right thing to do? Is this okay? We have a value system, but the needs eclipse tradition. How are we going to handle this? How are we going to respond? Well, we notice the response. What do they say? Nothing. They remain silent. Here's another thing in that culture that day. If you remain silent, it meant one of two things. It either meant you were wrong, and by your not saying anything, you're like, I'm wrong, you're right, I have nothing to say. Or it meant you were ignorant. You had no clue what he was talking about. Either one, it's not the light you want to be in at a guest's house where it's all distinguished and there's some people of notoriety and wealth and recognition and people you want to be said, hey, I was with that person. I got invited to their house for a meal. And so in the middle of their silence at the dinner table, Jesus performs this miracle. Imagine all of a sudden the dinner entertainment is a man whose body immediately is transformed. I can't imagine what that had to be like and the excitement for the one man and the other guy's going, what in the world is this guy doing this on the Sabbath? Hence the question, is it okay to do this on the Sabbath? The tension's building, the, this, the stress, if you will, at this dinner table is kind of making you want to go, you know, I don't know if I want to, to be here. Well, with the attention fixated on him, he recalibrates the guest system value system with the second question when he asks which one of you as he looks around at them will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the sabbath day would you guys do that well obviously the answer is going to be yes they would do that but wait a minute your value system, your rules by the Mishnah, which was a Jewish text that they would follow, gives 39 guidelines. You know, it doesn't say that that's a permittable that you can pull because that would be considered work. So are our needs going to eclipse tradition here? The tension's building with this second question, the stress that's mounting there. My appetite isn't quite what it once was before I got here. That food isn't tasting so good. Swallowing, it's a little tougher right now. I need a refill on my beverage to get this down is the setting that we have here at this table. I don't know about you, but have you ever gotten upset when a social religious norm was altered or broken that you felt was like, what are you doing? And you wanted to say something, but you didn't because, you well, you just chose not to, but you're like, this is not right. Well, this is what these guys are feeling. And we see this with the Pharisee and the Jesus disciples because they didn't wash their hands before eating in Matthew chapter 15. And the Pharisees go, what are you doing, Jesus? Don't you know our rules and our traditions? And Jesus is recalibrating this. The stress, the tension is going up. That's what's happening at dinner. What else is happening at dinner? Second part, while at dinner, Jesus rebukes the guests due to their self-centered attitudes. Oh, this should be comfortable to hear. Look at verse seven, verses seven to 11. 
And he began speaking in a parable to them, that's a story, and invited the guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, here's a story, okay? When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, uh, <clears throat> give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one uh, who has invited, uh, invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher Well, then you'll have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. And here's an important point, verse here, verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So this story highlights the importance of humility. In fact, if you were to kind of summarize this whole text we're looking at today, one word, humility. It's about humility. It's about being humble. And the imagery recalls from Matthew, or rather from Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7. I put it up on the screen for you. Do not exalt yourself in the king's presence, and do not claim a praise of, of, among great men. It is better for him to say to you, come up here, than for him to humiliate you before noblemen. In other words, guys at the table, you would have learned this in Sunday school. You, you covered the books of the Old Testament. You covered Proverbs. You know better than this. But because of where you are and who you could be distinguished and called out on and say, hey, look who's here. You're all looking at places of where you can sit to move yourself up. He's bringing this to their attention. So this story is actually happening because the guests in the Pharisee's table are vying for higher places of honor. To give you a perspective, I put together a slide for you just a kind of simple idea of what this can look like. So if we could bring that up. Yeah, here we go. So a little historical background. Wedding reception, banquet, which is what Jesus is using in his story. The table seating arrangement. So the table is a big U, as you see that. The idea of the table would be a big U-shaped table, as opposed to the rectangular table that we have today. It's, it's more that idea. And if you notice by the color codes I use, the host is in the green, and he's sitting at the head of the table. The honored guest who was referred to in this parable is sitting right next to him, and he's in the orange. And then there's a guest who, if you will, is a little less important, a little less distinguished. He's sitting furthest away, the last place at the table. And that's the setting that we have here. And this is how this would have been when they all showed up at this guy's house for dinner. It's just like that. And everyone's vying a place. Hey, who's here? Well, then I can move up further. Oh, he's here. I better move down. It's the same idea here, and this is what Jesus is bringing up to the guests. So the seating arrangement is, is like this. Jesus' point is clear. Look at verse 11 back in your, in your Bible here. He says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is here, and what's he doing at dinner? He's rebuking the guests due to their self-centered ambitions, their self-centered attitudes. It's, it's unmistakable. Kind of like it was years ago as a youth pastor, and I took a group of seniors. I used to take them up to Hollywood and use that as a metaphor about life and what they needed to be aware of as they went into the future. 
And we're at this 50s diner called Ed DeBevick's. I don't know if you ever got to go there, but it was super fun to go there. And the, and the, and the host or the waiters are intentionally sassy and they're kind of just rude to you. And it's kind of a ha-ha thing. And so we go there with my students and we're waiting outside to get in. All of a sudden the power goes off and it's like the whole grid of the block is gone, shut down. So people start coming out because it's super hot inside there. They instruct, the owner instructs the driveway to be put cones in front of it so nobody can get in. A few moments later, this limousine, this black stretch limousine pulls up. And what I can figure out is some dad has taken and blessed his daughter with a birthday she'll never forget. And all these girls are sticking out through the sunroof and the limo pulls up to the driveway to go in. And the cones are there. And we kind of see that and some of us are not really seeing it, but we do when we hear the dad say, move these cones now, get them out of the way. And everyone's like, whoa, holy smokes, what's this guy, what's this guy doing? I share that story with you to give this impression is while they're not shouting it out, it's the same attitude. Move these guys out of the way. I'm up further. Put me in that place. I've got a little bit of maybe self-centered, righteous reality here that I should be able to embrace. Move me up. And the same is true of these guests here. What else is happening at this dinner? Well, while at the dinner, the guest isn't enough, and the traditions aren't enough. Jesus rebukes the host due to his self-centered motives. Look at these motives in verse, uh, verses 12 to 14. And he also went on to say to one who had invited him. So this is the host. Here's what he says to him. When you give a luncheon or a dinner like you're doing today, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return. And that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, in contrast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You imagine being the guests and you're in the traditions that are going there and think, man, I'm uncomfortable. And then he singles out the host. We all know who that is. See, at least with your guest, you're kind of like, well, maybe he's speaking really to this guest. But when it's the host, the guy who invited you, it's you. <laughs> There's no one else to look at and go, well, I think he's really talking to him. No, he's talking to you. You're the host. You're the one who invited him. You see, the guest list of the host is made up of individuals who were probably popular in that day, distinguished, powerful, and certainly wealthy. In other words, the setup is perfect if you want repayment for what you're doing. It's kind of a, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. I do this for you, do this for me. In other words, those on the guest list had the means to return the favor to the host. And this is why in the first place, the host is inviting them. Because he can get repayment for it. That's why Jesus rebukes him. Makes him really enjoy his dinner, right? Rebukes him due to his self-centered motives. What he's done isn't inherently morally commendable. In fact, James 1.27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after orphans and widows in their distress to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That last phrase, polluted by the world. When I read a verse like that, I think of today's world. And there's so much more pollution morally. Influences that are stronger and greater. 
I don't often think of it that even back in the first century that they could be polluted. But in this setting for this leader, this host, he's got a polluted mind. His motives are being called out by Jesus. They have God in their presence at their table. And he's calling them out on this. It's kind of like, in my mind, it's kind of like a progressive dinner. Have you ever been on a progressive dinner where you eat one course of the meal at one house and you move on to the next house? Well, the idea is, is that, hey, if I feed you this course, then someone else is going to feed me the next course at their house. And that's how it works. In essence, what we have here is the same idea. It's a progressive meal, just not all in one night or one day. It's a progressive meal. Say, hey, I'm going to serve you today, but next month or in two months or later on this year, you're going to serve me back. And that's what we have unfolding here in this setting. So the, the guest value system is being recalibrated, needs, equips, tradition. We've got the guests being uh, rebuked for their self-centered attitudes. We've got the host now being rebuked for his self-centered motives. So at this point, it's interesting what Luke does. What Luke does is in his account with the tension ratcheting up more and more with Jesus recalibrating this system and the rebukes of the guests and the host, one guest, it seems to me, makes a valid, just as best as he can effort to lighten the tension, to kind of change stuff, to, to kind of get people kind of like, well, what could I do to help out this meal, this dinner situation here? Look at verse 15. Luke writes, when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. In other words, it's kind of this idea like we might do at the table and attention and the conversation's going the wrong way and you go, hey, Warren, how about those angels, huh? How those angels doing? Yeah, thumbs up. That's what I thought. Hey, how about those? You guys watch the game? You should watch the game. Angels are doing well. Yeah. You know, just kind of just trying to make conversation kind of light and low. In other words, what this guest, I think, is trying to do, he's trying to say, hey, guys, 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 we, we might have some differences here, and this, this rabbi, this teacher here has some different perspectives, but won't it be great when we all get to heaven and we're with God? That'll, how about that, huh? That'll be good, right? It's all better. And, and I imagine, even though Luke doesn't record it, I imagine Jesus almost saying, like, you know, you bring up a great point. That reminds me of another story. And this buddy's going, what were you doing? He's like, I'm trying, I'm trying so hard because here comes the next story. While at dinner, Jesus relegates the guests and the host's eternal destination from heaven to hell. Oh, this should be good. Look at verse 14, or rather, uh, verse 16. But he said to him, so here's his response to this guy trying to do something to, to lighten the load, right? right? Lighten the atmosphere, release the stress. A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five oxen, and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I have uh, married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come today. And the slave came back and reported this to the master. Then the, bread, the, sorry, the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the 
uh, streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has already been done and still there's more room. And the master said to the slave, Go out then into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste of my dinner. In other words, those that are thinking they're going to heaven will not be there, is what he's saying here. They understood that very clearly, what was going on. In response to this man's comment, Jesus challenges the assumption that being a Jew means you're going to heaven. It's not unlike growing up in the church and thinking, hey, well, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to church. Therefore, I'm going to heaven. I've done, I can even talk the Christianese language. I've got that done. I've even memorized a few verses. I even know the church web address. I've got stuff figured out. I'm looking this part really well. It's as though we have a man who goes, well, because I'm a Christian, that's my name, or a girl who says, because I'm Christine, I'm going to heaven, as though the word Christ in the middle of your name makes you a Christian. Silly, isn't it? But that's how silly this concept is for these guys thinking, hey, we grew up in the Jewish home. We're Pharisees. We're guaranteed entrance into heaven. Just look at who we are. It's in our DNA. And Jesus is saying, oh, man, I had to tell you this story because of what that guy said. Like, hey, wouldn't it all be good when we all get to heaven? Like, mm, not everybody's going to make it there because you're on a false assumption that you've got everything right, that you're righteous just by your own DNA, your own background. And what Jesus is saying is those who appear to be in line for the blessing run the risk of not being accepted or being in attendance at all. And Jesus tells the story of this man who is planning a great banquet in his home. It's a major event which includes sending out invitations and RSVP of that day. See, they would go out and tell him, and then the day would come when the party was, and they went out and said, hey, the party's tonight, come on in. And what we saw here was that there was many excuses. The three invitees of the story, they've RSVP'd. But if they've now give their reasons for why they can't come. If you notice, there was the landowner. I had to think. He said he wanted to go look at it. I wonder, is he thinking it's going to escape? Is the land is going to run off somewhere? It's going to fall into a crater? The guy who's got the five oxen, that's like in today's farming world, that's like five tractors. If you've got five tractors, I guarantee you're not the only one who's driving them. You have servants who can do that for you. And the guy who got, who got married, man, he's, he's got the best excuse of all. In Deuteronomy 24.5, it says, you are under no obligation to do anything. How would you like that get out of invitation jail free card, right? Someone's asked you to do something and you just say, um, I just got married. Deuteronomy 24, 5 says, in my first year of my marriage, I don't need to do anything. So please, I'm under no obligation to accept your invitation. See you later. But this guy accepts it. He should have never responded in the first place. So his excuse is pretty lame. So what we see here in the story, well, rather than waste the food that's been prepared and the ongoing preparation that's been unfolded here and the great food that they're going to have, the owner tells the servants to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, just like it mentioned in verse 13. But there's still more room at the table. There's still, they could have more. And so he says, go out further to find them. 
In other words, the parable implies that God will invite all kinds of people to the table, including those usually excluded. In fact, in Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 12, God informs us that all people and all nations will be present at his banquet table. The seating arrangement looks something like this in what was intended for God's kingdom. Here's God sitting there on the left table there on the screen. He's at the head of the table, right? Israel, the chosen people, they're right there as his honored guests. And the Gentiles, we're definitely at the last place. And though they're rejecting God in their presence, he's saying, guess what's going to happen? Instead, we're going to switch it out. You guys gave me excuses for why you don't think I'm the Messiah or shouldn't follow me and call me Lord. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to send out my servants further and further and further to the people that would most likely in their minds and their traditions go, they'll never be at the table. They'll never get in heaven. We're the chosen ones. And what happens is you have this resituation. The seating is different. Remember the honored guests? And you've taken that place and he says, go sit down someplace else. That's what's happening here. Can you imagine how great everybody's feeling now with their meal? I don't know that there's Tums or Rolaids or whatever else that they can start popping in to make them feel better, but that's what's happening and God's shifting this around in this story. The original invitees represent Israel here and, and you see it from there where the Gentiles come into play. Uh, so here's our setting. This is what's happening at dinner. But as you leave the dinner table and you were going home, the question that comes to my mind is what lessons should be learned from Jesus at the dinner table? What are the lessons? What will we take away from this time? Now, let me offer you three. First of all, I should embrace humility by serving others, not myself. This is what Luke 14, 11 is bringing out. Look, everybody wants to be served, but few people want to serve others. In fact, in Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 to 28, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to be like Christ, and we understand embracing humility by serving others, we see this played out in Philippians 2, verses 3 to 11. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility... Consider others better than themselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of Christ. In fact, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And it goes on to talk about how he goes and humbles himself, doesn't even consider equality with God something to be grasped, even though he is. And he makes himself nothing. He makes himself servant. And he goes and dies, but not just any death. He dies on a cross. But what happens in the end? Because of that, God exalts him. And it tells us that all of us one day, saved or not saved, will one day say, Jesus, you are Lord. Every tongue will confess and every knee will bow down and proclaim that. This is why we should embrace humility by serving others, not ourselves. Years ago, I was a youth pastor and I just arrived at the last church I was at where I served there for 17 years. Six, six months have been there. And I've got a concert, first kind of big event that's going on. And I'm excited about this. And I go out to our youth center where we're going to have this. And just like at Pastor Mike's house a couple weeks ago, he told you about that eucalyptus tree falling down. Well, a eucalyptus tree has fallen down across the entire driveway. And now I can't get any cars in. And this is, of course, a big problem, a big issue. I'm new. I don't know exactly what to do. I run to the church office and say, I don't know what to do. Here's what's happening. Just what I explained. 
I said, don't worry, Bill, we'll get this figured out. I go back to the youth room. I'm doing some work to get stuff ready. And all of a sudden walks in a gentleman by the name of Don Hewlin. Don Hewlin was the superintendent of our Christian school. It was a ministry of our church. He's also the chairman of our elder board. He's got a set of jeans and a T-shirt and some tennis shoes, and he's going in, and, of course, he's in a coat and tie because he's the superintendent of the school. I go, hey, Don, uh, I'm thinking, what's he doing out here? I'm busy doing my stuff. He comes out. I said, Don, uh, <clears throat> what are you doing? He goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chop up that tree for you. I, I go, but, Don, I, I didn't intend for you to be the person who was doing that. You're the superintendent of the school. You're the chairman of the elder board. He goes, don't worry about it, Bill. I didn't say that part to him, but he says, I, he goes, don't worry about it, Bill. He goes, all you're going to hear now for the next half hour is screaming eucalyptus trees. And I went, fair enough. I share that story with you in this idea that embracing humility by serving others, not ourselves, to ask you this. Is there a story about you serving others that others can tell? Is there a story about you that you've done to serve somebody else that, like I can today, tell the story about Don? See, that's the opportunity. When we look about embracing humility by serving others, that gives another person to be blessed by you, and ultimately it gives them maybe down the road on a sermon one day, years later, 20 years later, saying, hey, I remember how he served. I've never forgotten that. That left an impression upon me for the whole remainder of my time at that church, and he was there and still is there today. I should embrace humility by serving others. That's a lesson we take. Here's a second lesson. I should endeavor to be honored by God, not by others. I should endeavor to be honored by God, not by others. That's what Luke 12 or Luke 14, 12 to 14 brings out. In Matthew 6, 1 to 18, Jesus addresses the matter of rewards and recognition by using prayer as an example. In this situation, the story, uh, guys would get up in, in prayer, Pharisees would get up in prayer, and they would have a, an ensemble of horns that would blow horns, and then he would pray out loud so everybody could hear him, and all the attention would be upon him. And Jesus is saying, hey, nice prayer, but your reward, your answer to prayer is basically already done. Because you wanted recognition. You wanted to be honored by people rather than honored by God. You wanted to be, have them answer your request of, hey, look at me. Rather than our Heavenly Father answer the request and say, here you go. I want to serve you. I want to bless you. Let me just be transparent with you really quickly here for a moment. Uh, um, I'm a pastor is sometimes a title addressed to me. Um, and, and, and when it comes to pray, I like praying, but I just have to tell you in transparency, I do not necessarily enjoy praying in front of you as much as I enjoy praying by myself. Here's why. <laughs> because when I pray in front of you, I am always conscious of what you're thinking and listening to than I am more so than what God is hearing. And that's an ongoing struggle I have. I just would rather like, I don't want to have to pray because I know for me, a weakness for me is to go, man, I hope they think I'm sounding pastoral. And I'm going, oh, that's right, I'm talking to God. I should endeavor to be honored by him, not by others. Ask yourself this question. Can you serve without repayment or thanks or recognition from others? Years ago when I was a youth pastor, or, or sorry, I wasn't there yet in life, I was a janitor. 
I didn't know I was going into ministry. I came home one night from uh, to, to eat dinner, and, and my aunt and uncle were talking and saying, hey, there's an opening at the church for a janitor. They're looking for a janitor. I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to do that. But I hear it pays this, double what I was making, and hours are flexible. Same amount of hours I had at my other job, which I loved. It was working with Porsches, so that was cool. But this one gave me more flexibility as a college student, and it paid me more. And so I was a janitor, and I remember going into this one uh, office, a music minister, his name was Mike Dishner, and he had this plaque on his desk, and it said this. It said, there is no limit to what you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. There is no limit on what you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. I remember the first time I saw that, I like, that is so stupid. Why would somebody put that on their desk? Like, doesn't care who gets the credit. Like, what is this guy thinking? You know, and I go on week after week on Friday afternoons, and I cleaned all the offices. And I'd see that, and I remember thinking, oh, there's that plaque again. Maybe there's something to that. And it continued, I, for four years, I'd see that on that desk. And I have to tell you, it stuck with me. He had no idea. I haven't talked to that guy for 25, 30 years. But I remember thinking, as I put this message together, I should endeavor to be honored by God, not by others. Like a plaque says, hey, there's no limit what you can get done if you don't care who gets the credit. Give it unto God who keeps perfect records, as he says here in his word. We all have an audience we're performing for. The question is, is it an audience of one or of many? Last lesson I'll leave you with is this. I should ensure my place in heaven today, not tomorrow. That's the last part of Luke 14, 18 to 24. I should ensure my place in heaven today, not tomorrow. Note that the owner in the parable has a certain attitude, a certain demeanor at this moment in verse 21. Look back at it real quick. And the slave came back and responded to him with this master. Then the head of the household became what? Angry. The head of the household becomes angry. He's got, these guests have God in their presence. And they're rejecting him. And what he's saying is, if this continues on for the remainder of your life and you don't deal with it today, then your eternity, where you're spending it, your destination, it's going to be not in heaven. It's going to be relegated to hell. Imagine the tension and how, hey, could we get some more dessert at this point? I don't think so. I want to, the thought is don't put off obeying Jesus tomorrow. He's the one who numbers your days, not you. Uh, uh, about two months ago, got a phone call. I was in staff meeting, looked at my phone and thought, man, I recognize the area code, but I don't recognize the number. It's probably a telemarketer. I don't need to answer this. And I didn't, but they left a voicemail. I thought the audacity of this telemarketer to leave a voicemail, what are they doing? I listened to the voicemail, and it's this guy, Dave, and he says, hey, could you call me back, Bill? I'm Mike Davis's son. Like, what's he calling me for? Mike Davis is our ranch manager. I inherited a small little orange ranch up in the San Joaquin Valley that I inherited with my other brothers and my aunt. I call him back, and he goes, hey, this is David. I'm like, hey, David, uh, how's it going? Well, I just want to let you know that my dad died last night. Your dad died last night? Yeah, he was 61. I just had emailed him the week before. 
conversing about some stuff on the ranch and work being done and whatnot. And I thought, here's a guy, 61, perfectly healthy as far as we knew. That was it for him. You see, friends, he knew Jesus, but if he didn't, he didn't have another tomorrow to receive him, which is why I made this the lesson. I should ensure my place in heaven today, not tomorrow. Because when we hear of stories of God's mercy and grace towards others, we presume, hey, we'll have that ourselves too. Maybe, maybe, but not guaranteed. You see, each time you say no, your heart grows a little darker, a little dimmer, a little rest, less receptive to the gospel message. Romans 1.28 says that this is what happens to you when you fail to ensure your place in heaven today. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking. Let them do things that should never be done. The Bible says to ensure your place in heaven today, not tomorrow. I put it up on the screen, 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Should ensure my place in heaven today, not tomorrow. Friend, you have, insu- have you ensured your place in heaven today? I ask because you may not have tomorrow. Tomorrow. 